we're having weirder and weirder experiences. We're having ape men like Bigfoot. We're having dog men nowadays. John Keel theorized that the reason that things are getting weirder and weirder in the paranormal field, in the ufological field, is because whatever that device is that was created thousands of years ago is slowly becoming senile. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations, or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back to the Spectral Skull Session. I am your host, Dane, and this is the second part of my interview with Ted from the Gaslight Hour. And I believe, Ted, we were just about to get to the uh, the Eighth Tower, which was one of John Keel's later works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we touched on it a little bit before whenever we were talking about Super Spectrum, because that's the book that he's pretty, he explicitly at least, defines what the, what the Super Spectrum is and how it kind of legitimizes in his words or at least his uh his goal was to legitimize the paranormal field as a a field that's worthy of scientific exploration and just for the people who are just joining us at the uh second part of the interview the super spectrum theory is a theory uh about what's behind cryptids ufos and ghosts or poltergeists right it's a theory of um i like another frequency of energy that we haven't understood yet is causing these other phenomena. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in as few words as I can possibly put it, uh, you have perceivable spectrums like sound and uh, sight, light bands and whatnot. And outside of though that narrow spectrum that you've evolved to perceive uh, is the ultra bands and the I forgot what the or the narrower bands are, whatever they are. Ultraviolet. Ultra, and there's another one that's, like, on the other side. Infrared. Uh, infrared, like, that, that type of stuff, at least on light. Uh, but then there's ultrasonic and the real low ones. But anyways, not to get too sciencey, anything outside of what we can perceive, John Keel defines as the super spectrum in this book. And that's where all the weird stuff exists. Whatever creates the ultra-terrestrials, whatever manifests those, it operates within this unperceivable field. And sometimes we can perceive it. And according to him, and we didn't bring this up on the last episode, but some people have quote-unquote gifts or evolutions that they have acquired through their, their heritage. That allows them to perceive a little bit farther into uh, the unperceivable spectrums. Like they can see a little bit more light than we can, like different bands of light. 
uh, different bands of audio than we would be able to. They, they can perceive that somehow. He doesn't explain it beyond that. Uh, so you've got the spe- super spectrum, and the ultra terrestrials are more or less the manifestations that come out of that, since we kind of worked through that in the last episodes. So you get aliens, you get cryptids, you get poltergeist, things like that. It's a theory of everything, as Joe on the podcast likes to call it. Uh, so we've got that, and in the eighth tower, where where he's more past the point of defining what the super spectrum is, he brings in the metaphor that he named the book after, and that is the eighth tower. And this metaphor comes from his experience in uh, traveling the Orient, which he wrote about in a book called Jadu. Uh, he started out in Egypt and made his way all the way to, I think it was Singapore, before he got, uh, I guess, deported is a nice word for it, back to Germany, because uh, he, he started in, he was stationed in Germany. I don't know why he wasn't allowed to be there. So he, somewhere in the Middle East, he came upon this tribe of people that were called the Yazidis, and what they believed in was that you have to respect the devil. They were kind of, in his words, not necessarily Christian, but not devil worshippers per se. They were described as devil worshippers because they were always trying to please the devil. And people saw this as a form of devil worship. And uh, what he came to know their culture or religion actually was, was they were trying to please the devil so that he doesn't do bad things to them. It's more of like, the furious God appeasing him so he doesn't bring awful things upon your family or your persons. Uh, So they believe that the devil was underground and they were always trying to please him as a form of just avoiding bad things happen. It wasn't explicit devil worship. They weren't summoning him. They weren't trying to get him to do bad things to other people. They weren't sacrificing things to the devil, as far as I'm aware. Uh, that, That was just their culture. And he came across a story about the Yazidis through, I think it was Seabrook's novel. I don't remember the exact novel, but if you read The Eighth Tower, if you want to, you get to that chapter. He puts the reference that he gets this from, and it's about that culture. And they believe that there were eight towers across the world where a demon would set up on top of each tower and kind of transmit this psychic wave that regulated all action on the planet. And that's why bad things happen, and I think that was it. Like, that's just why bad things happen, is because there's these demons on top of towers that transmit signals. And the number might not have even been eight. I think eight was his addition to it to explain the phenomenon. It was, uh, there were seven towers probably. Uh, So the eighth tower was the metaphor tower, where he believed in this breakaway civilization that we discussed, that he wrote about mostly in Our Haunted Planet. And it explained things like the pyramids and weird megalithic structures that nowadays we explain as astronomical structures that the ancients built because they knew a lot about space, I guess. Uh, hand wave. 
so there were there was this ancient breakaway civilization that existed somehow all across the globe, or my preferred theory is more akin to what John Keel wrote about in uh, Our Haunted Planet. Something was influencing them to build similar structures at the same time. Because the alternative is that there is a super civilization that inhabits the entire world at the same time, and they're just building stuff that they know to build, like pyramids everywhere or mounds everywhere uh, and what what have you. The thing he brings up in Our Haunted Planet is that the, all of these civilizations have similar ideas at the same time across huge spans of ocean and land and whatever physical geo, geographical barriers existed at the time. But they would do the similar things like mound building, pyramid building, all at the same time. So it was almost as if something was regulating them into having similar ideas and motivations to do similar things with materials that are immediately available to them. And of course, phenomenologically, they come out different because those people have different life experiences, right? Uh, but nonetheless, there's something motivating them underneath it to create these super megalithic structures. To create towers, which are control towers. <laughs> not necessarily that. I think that was more... It's not like 5G. No. Uh, I thought that's that they were like demons transmitting like 5G controlling waves. Yeah, that was that was the, the, the story that he read that gave him the idea for the metaphor. Uh, but the... In Our Haunted Planet, he did establish like a lot of those ancient structures were built by people because they were influenced by the same thing across large expanse, expanses of land, which kind of hints at a proto-superspectrum deal. Now, the Eighth Tower itself, he took off of that story that I told about the Yazidis and how they believed that there were the demons on top of the towers. And he believed that at some point, and this could be extremely Fordian in the sense that he's just giving an alternative explanation for things that science is trying to rationalize away. Uh, all the scientific take being that all paranormal activity in UFOs have a natural explanation, even though it's 10,000 natural explanations. Uh, in his blanket term, he's saying, all right, so there is this super spectrum underlying a phenomenon that makes high strangeness happen, makes weird experiences happen. Uh, what if the, and this is the realm of speculation that he's going in, in case it, it isn't already clear, what if whatever that ancient breakaway civilization is that existed in ancient times uh, constructed some kind of device? It's not necessarily a tower. Uh, the tower is just a metaphor, but they construct this device that exists potentially in the super spectrum because the ancient people have the technology to work within the realm of the super spectrum. Or the, the suggestion in the book is that the super spectrum itself is influencing them to create whatever this device is so that the device itself is a replacement for the super spectrum. Uh, and the goal of whatever this device is, the Eighth Tower, is to regulate humanity in the same way that the super spectrum is already regulating humanity. Uh, just like Valet's control theory hypothesis, but 
uh, physicalized. It's a materialistic outlook on that theory. We're making a device to replace a thing that already exists because it is making us create this device. It Whatever the super spectrum is, needs to retire. Which, if you wanted to go even deeper into speculation, uh, that implies that perhaps there was another device, even as far back as antediluvian times, uh, where some super civilization back then created that device, and it's time for it to retire. It's a chicken and the egg, but with weird occultism masquerading as science. So the super civilization is building a device to replace something, or even to channel something that already exists, or even amplify something that already exists. We don't know, because it happened thousands of years ago. But the device exists nonetheless, and the reason we haven't found it is because it exists in the super spectrum. We can't perceive it. Uh, it's somewhere out there. The reason that a lot of our experiences are becoming less religious and a lot more weird, so we're moving away from formal religious experiences where people are having uh, quote-unquote normal religious experiences that ha follow a set path, like angelic or demonic or whatever that's guiding different cultures around the world, to we're having Bigfoots jump out of bushes and knocking people's hat off at the middle of the, just middle of the night type stuff. Or uh, one of my favorite ones is, I think it was in France, people saw a ball of light crash on a mountain and two guys ran out of it screaming into the woods and disappeared while the ball of light exploded on the hill. Mm. Uh, so we're having weirder and weirder experiences. We're having ape men like Bigfoot. We're having dog men nowadays, which is even crazier than Bigfoot because you're talking about uh, a hairy biped that has a dog head. Just crazy cryptids. Uh, John Keel theorized that the reason that things are getting weirder and weirder in the paranormal field, in the ufological field, is because whatever that device is that was created thousands of years ago is slowly becoming senile. It had some kind of sentience. It wanted direct, to direct uh, humanity in a certain way or at least control them like a thermostat, like Valet would suggest. But now it's senile. It's, it's going mad, and it's trying to, as quickly as possible, push humans into replacing it. Uh, but Because it's going to just keep getting crazier and crazier to the point where it's not going to have a replacement and who knows what happens after that. No idea. So where, where this gets real weird is the way that he's describing it, it sounds a lot like a computer or the Internet, uh, which if you think about the Internet having been created over the past, what, 40 years, 50 years, 2020? Ugh, ugh, I feel old. 60 years maybe. <laughs> uh, if you think about the Internet as it exists and computers as they exist, they're almost like a decentralized form of this machine. So much of humanity is controlled on the internet at this point. Like, you can't find a job unless you have the internet. You can't, you can't do so many things nowadays unless you have the internet. Uh, so, and there's so much information on the internet just by looking at Wikipedia, you know? I mean, there are entire podcasts and YouTube channels that are nothing but reading Wikipedia pages. 
That's a real thing that people make money on. Hint, hint for people that want to make money. Uh, but there's so much knowledge in the internet. And my suggestion is back in, let's see, I've listened to some Art Bell episodes back in, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago. No, longer than that. A while back, I was listening to an Art Bell episode and somebody mentioned the internet gaining sentience as a concept that people were thinking about in the 90s. So my theory that is kind of an appendage on the Eighth Tower is, and this isn't to go completely crazy on your show, but I'm going to do it anyways. Go ahead, please. This is great. My suggestion is, if the Eighth Tower is not necessarily just a metaphor, but if it's a real thing, like there was an actual device created thousands of years ago to replace a quote-unquote natural or paranatural phenomenon that already existed and it's trying to replace itself it may be trying to replace itself with the internet and the internet is slowly gaining sentience and with the onset of artificial intelligence it's uh it kind of smacks you in the face real fast when you think about it because mm-hmm. people were talking about this in the 90s People in the 90s believed that the internet was already gaining sentience and influencing people that were accessing it. Uh, I think one of the more recent theories on weird theories on the internet is uh, the dead internet theory, which there's a treasure trove of information there for anybody that's brave enough to get banned on whatever platform they're posted on. Let's see. Isn't the dead internet theory the theory that most people on the internet are not real? They're like AIs? Uh, not necessarily, but that is kind of a component of it. Okay. In the broad strokes, the dead internet theory, not to like kill everything that I've built up because it doesn't, nece- it doesn't literally mean the internet's dead. It means the concept of the Wild West internet is dead, essentially. Like nobody just bro- nobody just web surfs anymore. They don't just look up a bunch of different websites to see what's there. Uh, like I guess it's the analog of channel surfing back in the day. People, for all the younger folk, uh, whenever you were bored, you would just get on the internet and look up random websites. You'd go to a search engine and just browse the internet to see what was there. Uh, but the dead internet theory suggests that that's largely not a thing that happens anymore. Uh, people don't go to forums anymore, really. I mean, there are people that go to forums, but a lot of that's been relegated to places like Reddit and Discord, and to uh, at least a limited extent, social media. Like, social media groups are a thing where people that have specialized interests go to. That used to be something that was for message boards and forums. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if like if I asked you right now, uh, on a every single day that you use the internet across a month, uh, how many websites do you visit every single day consistently? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, there's actually only probably three or four. Exactly. And ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, if you wanted to get on the internet, because at least whenever I was a kid, uh, and we had internet, we had to pay by the minute, so we would just yeah. browse the internet for a. I don't know, half hour or something like that and try to get as much content as we can that slow internet would allow us to get. But I mean, in a day, you would probably browse more websites than you do in a month now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's the basis of that theory is that the internet's, the old internet's dead. Most of the web 
has died off. Like all those billions of websites that used to exist for all kinds of random crap. Yeah. Uh, people don't go to those anymore. All that stuff is dead. Most people go on Netflix, Hulu, the streaming services, the social medias, the discords, the chat services. Uh, but they have their own specific ones that they go to. So most people are using probably less than five internet pages, if we can call them that, because nowadays they're more like apps at a time. Uh, that's it. We, we've streamlined our online presence to a very limited sphere. And outside of, I guess, the more adventurous people on uh, like YouTube and 4chan, nobody really goes into the internet to see what's still there. Mm-hmm. there there's people that browse the dark web, as it's called, uh, but that that's it. Like there's, it's it's almost niche to be a web surfer nowadays. It's a very niche thing that very limited people do. The majority of internet people just or internet users just they use what they use, and that's it. Yeah. So your your point is that the internet has shrunk to a handful of nodes, and whoever controls whoever or whatever controls those nodes controls the internet. Uh, not so much that. That's that's the basis. F- what I was just saying was more the basis for the dead internet theory, why it's called that. Uh, there is, like I was saying before, there's a lot of stuff that relies on the internet to exist. Like if you take down the internet, how many of your home services no longer operate because internet's down? Uh, like, I don't know how much electricity and utilities relies on the internet, but if one of those servers just goes down, there's no telling if you're getting service next month, if it's down for more than a month. Because you can't pay your bill. They can't put your bill into the system. Yeah. Because that's on a computer. That's on a server. Uh, but another part, like you mentioned, most of the people on the internet not being real. And that's a component of the dead internet theory, too. And it's that whenever we did used to use forums and chat boards and 4chan and what have you, whatever we were using to just log on, say our words, talk to the friends that used those websites, uh, people would just disappear after a while. Yeah. Sometimes you'd be able to find them based on their uh, the writing habits, like how they wrote was pretty specific. Because whenever you're reading all the time, you pick up on the nuances of people's written word, uh, which was probably a lot easier 50 years ago than now. But it was a thing that people did. People would just look that if somebody disappeared from a website, they would just go to something that was adjacent to it and start browsing the the forum to see if they can find that person and see if they just kind of exodosed out of that website to a, a new, better website or one that they preferred. Uh, and after a few years, a lot of these accounts started disappearing, and a lot of people noticed that some of these accounts kind of had weird ways of using words, which suggested that maybe this was an early attempt at artificial intelligence. And this was, at least in uh, the dead internet theory proper, like the actual uh, thing that they posted on, I think it was 4chan, they were talking about being on the internet around 2012 and starting to notice this, where people would drop off after three years and then Microsoft eventually had their own AI that they announced. Like, we're going to launch this AI on Twitter and let it learn everything that it can off of the users. And uh, for anybody that doesn't know how that ended, don't go on 4chan.
it, it, it ended badly. The, the AI ended up being a racist. It yeah, didn't it become a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, it, it became a Nazi in like a day. So we gave it self-awareness and then it immediately decided to wipe us out. Yeah, but the the idea of that being like a piece of evidence is that was a a private business officially stating that it developed an AI that it is going to put out into the internet tabula rasa it can just it's a blank state or blank slate let's see what happens to it. And uh knowing people on Twitter became a Nazi in a day. But they use that as like, okay, so if a private business put out an AI in 2015 or 2016, whenever it, whenever it happened, uh, maybe the government was working on AI way before this. So all these people that kept disappearing over and over, well, not the same person, but people, plural, disappearing from chat boards and stuff and noticing that they're not speaking with normal cadence that you'd write with, uh, which could be a just a component of using the internet because the internet's lying, but it could just be there was AI on the internet that was potentially developed by the government, or what if this is just the eighth tower manifesting itself again and it's creating little accounts here and there and sprinkling them over there just to learn things about how to interact with people on the internet. Yeah. And you have to wonder after, I don't know, 20 years of doing that, would you be able to tell if something tabula rasa went into the internet and collected a lot of information from a a bunch of different places on the internet, a bunch of people, a lot of interactions, would you be able to tell that that's a real human being? Would it pass the Turing test? Uh, Because we're not talking about an actual program that's being developed by the government per se. We're talking about what if the internet has developed sentience because it was built to raise, I, I don't know, develop sentience eventually? Yeah, it's an emergent property of high levels of connectivity, right? Yeah. Because that's but, the, the dominant theory of uh, the brain. How, how does our brain work? How does consciousness arise? Well, it's a property. Mm-hmm. It's a higher level property that just when you have all these little neurons and all the neurons do is they work on simple principles of being on or off. Mm-hmm. I'm told that's an oversimplification, but this is the model. Your neurons turn on or off, and when a neuron turns on, the uh, neurons that it has outputs connected to, it's more likely to turn them on. Mm-hmm. And so when you just kind of like uh, crunch the, let the system go, then the turning on and off of neurons becomes everything we do. And one of those things is consciousness, right? So there's no consciousness in the individual neuron. It's just a machine doing an algorithm. And, uh, but when you put them all together, you get us. So maybe the internet being all this connectivity and all these different nodes. Well, my suggestion is what if, so if we take the control theory uh, that Jacques Vallée had or even like go a little bit more batshit and say the John Keel ultra terrestrial or super spectrum theory. Yeah. Uh, and it's, that's a thing that exists out there and it's influencing us to build the internet so it can have a replacement for itself. Okay. So we're designing the internet based on specifications that are being that we're developing ourselves because that's the technology we can create, right? But we're being influenced at the same time by something that wants to create itself within its own parameters. Like just recreate a better newer version that isn't seen. If that were right, 
Wouldn't we expect the people who are advancing technology to be having visions? They'd be reporting having these, uh, you know, they get their ideas from somewhere else. Uh, not necessarily. That's kind of like the silent contactee thing, wouldn't it be? Because if you just go out and say, yeah, I built the internet and uh, I got most of my ideas for this part of the uh, the programming from a message I got in my sleep or my hand just started writing notes, like people would think you're crazy. But um, I have some reason to think that that happens. Oh, I, I'm sure some people have like Silicon Valley's crazy. Those people are insane. So I 100% believe that some of those people have done it. Uh, but I think there's even more that would never admit it because their career would be at stake. Yeah. And I mean, we're not talking about like creating some kind of artistic work per se. Because mm -hmm. uh, it would be a lot easier to attach that to like some kind of artistic work or a, a crazy writing. We are talking about code at the end of the day. Uh, but the way that that code operates, we we don't know how much of that's influenced by other things. And, I mean, at this point in time, if we've already gained awareness that, or at least some of us have gained awareness that there is a thing out there influencing us into a certain cultural direction, uh, if it's capable of learning from us, as it's implied, because it is a feedback loop, uh, part of the feedback we're putting back into the environment is that we're learning about it, or at least becoming aware that that's a thing that's out there. Uh, so it would probably, at least in my speculation, take that information and do something with it so it's a lot less uh, overt. But, I mean, we are talking about something that's hypothetically senile, too. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, it's really fun to speculate about this, especially when you consider how John Keel describes the Eighth Tower in the book as being essentially an analog version of the internet. And then other people on the internet are noticing weird things about the internet. And I mean, even in the 90s, they were, they were noticing weird things on the internet. Uh, and it goes back to, I, I don't think we talked about this on the last episode, but uh, not serendipity, but synchronicity. Yeah. Like, we, we already touched a little bit on this episode with talking about our haunted planet. There's synchronicity all over the world as if people are being influenced to do similar things. Yeah. And the, the same thing happens just about in every field, I would reckon. Because uh, when I did listen to a lot of conspiracy and paranormal podcasts several years ago, uh, and then like Coast to Coast and stuff like that, and I was reading... The books that I was reading, there was there were parallels between podcast content on things that were released at the same time. Yeah, and that was weird. Like people were getting the same ideas on paranormal talk shows as other paranormal talk shows without, at, at least to what I can see, like none of those people have communicated with each other to like plan this grand conspiracy of hey, let's try to start a new thing. Because uh, they weren't even talking about anything interesting per se. It was just run-of-the-mill paranormal stuff. Uh, but they were getting similar ideas that ended up influencing the field. Like, a lot of those ideas are what led to, like, Hellier. Like, that TV show. Yeah, I don't know very much about Hellier. 
it is it's an interesting TV show. Uh, if you've it's not on TV, it, it, it was on YouTube first, and I think you can get it on Amazon. Uh, but that whole show is about synchronicity. Ah. Uh, and I mean, to give you an idea of the synchronicity we're talking about, uh, like John Keel talked about synchronicities all the time that he had, and he would be talking with one witness and withholding that information, like not publishing it, not sharing it with anybody, getting the same details from other witnesses, especially in relation to men in black sightings, whenever people would report men in black sightings. Uh, some of it was UFO stuff. Uh, but names were a big thing, too. The name game thing. And I think, who was the guy that that talked about that a lot? He still talks about that a lot. Uh, Lauren Coleman. Like, if you want to, if you're interested in the name game stuff. Yeah, what is the name game? The name game is basically, so, two weird events happen across the country. Uh, and both of those people either have the same first name or the same last na- name or one of their names in their first and last is the same as the other person's name in their first or last. It might be spelled a little bit different, mm. but it's like that. Or it's even as far as an experience happens, there's a very unique name in that experience, and it may be the person experiencing its name, or it may be whatever they're experiencing is saying, my name is, uh, I think the popular one is, I'm drawing a blank. Well, let's say it's like Xenu or something like that. Uh, so other people in Europe or what have you are doing a seance. They didn't see a UFO like that one witness, but uh, a ghost is coming through and saying it's Xenu. And then halfway around the world to, or a quarter way of the world to China, somebody's saying, yeah, my name's Xenu and I saw a dog man or something. Like that's just a rough, yeah. a rough, like, way that the name game works it's just you can look into different sightings and find similar names whenever there's high strangeness happening at different the same time or similar times all the way across the country and i don't know how much that has slowed down with the proliferation of the internet because now all that information is instant so you can always just say that people are just conspiring or making things up Uh, but you look into old sightings and like names and dates are real weird, especially like the 24th of every month, the 23rd of every month. Wednesdays were a huge thing, not just with John Keel, but with Jacques Vallée, uh, with M- Michel Amé. I don't know how to say French words, uh, but he was a, he was the straight line researcher out in France. Uh, whenever you did the statistics in the 60s about UFO sightings, the highest probability of the day of the week that they would be sighted on was Wednesday night, which everybody, well, at least back in the day, most people worked Monday through Friday. Uh, There's nothing special about Wednesday. People are going to work in the morning. They're coming home in the evening. It's not necessarily dark. Uh, They're doing their daily ritual. So why are they seeing UFOs on Wednesday instead of Saturday and Sunday when they're off, when they could be having parties outside, you know? But researchers were finding that correlation, which, as far as we know, is meaningless. Uh, Another correlation that came up a lot in the 60s was most sightings didn't happen in heavily populated areas. Uh, Most of it was out in the country, which is converse to what you think, because if more people are in the cities and UFOs are evenly distributed wherever you saw them, or strange encounters were evenly distributed, 
you'd expect more people would see them in the city. Uh, but that's just not how it worked out. Most of the sightings were in the country, which scientists would usually explain away as, oh, they're, you know, rednecks. What do they know about lights in the sky? Could have been a star. Uh, but, I mean, people in the city probably know less about stars than people in the country because have you seen light pollution? Uh, that's me getting side-railed. Yeah. But there's that's what synchronicity is. Like, all these people... and. That was more an evidence-based synchronization or synchronization, synchronicity. However you say that word. I don't say it all. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's more evidence-based. So there might be like a legitimate reason because that's something that just exists there and information that anybody can get their hands on. And UFO interest was high in the 60s, so it goes to, it goes to reason that plenty of people that were looking into it would compile this evidence and find the same details as long as they're real because they're there in the data uh, but the name game is more of this weird metaphysical synchronicity that happens uh, more commonly when people use synchronicity nowadays it's more like correspondence uh, where you would have an idea in your mind and you would open up a book randomly and you're not even like trying to do a magic trick or some kind of weird uh, ritual or anything like that. You're just, here's a book that looks interesting. Let me open it up to see what's in there. And then whatever you're thinking about or whatever problem you're having in your head, uh, there's some kind of answer or a little thread in there that leads you somewhere else. So you follow that thread and then you get more ideas. So there's this correspondence happening where a random event inspires a whole line of reasoning that you end up following down whatever rabbit hole you go in. Uh, and that's that's the plot of what Hellier is specifically. Uh, Jacques Vallée had the same problem in Messengers of Deception with there was a name that he kept using over and over again and it was a really odd name. And I think it came up in the Book of Mormon. Oh, that was a weird one. I Maroni, yeah. But this name kept coming up in different places around the world wherever he was. Uh, there were cults that had this this name in their cult. Like the leader's name would be Maroni. Uh, Keel had the same, like I was saying, Keel had the same thing with the men in black. I would almost bet like anybody that gets into the paranormal field, if you seriously want to learn what's behind anything that's happening with this phenomenon what's eventually going to happen is you're going to have a series of correspondences where you're you've got a problem in your head that you can't figure out like you're you're just lost as as to where to look and you open something up and whatever problem you have in your head you find something that gives you new ideas like it just spurs sparks something and then that leads to another bit of information that leads to another bit of information and suddenly you're developing your own personal theory about whatever the field is. And the deeper you follow that, the more insane and out of touch with reality you get because you're no lo longer operating on rules of uh, proper academic research. You're, you're operating on this weird phenomenological, I don't know, 
gymnastics routine. You're just following, you're going through motions that you think are going to lead to some kind of ultimate truth because the more you look into it, the more you see some kind of truth appearing in the distance. But the more you chase that truth, the more insane you get because it, it starts just blurring on you. You, you lose full focus on what you're, you're looking for. You start finding things that are completely unrelated to the, the problem you had to begin with. Uh, and you know what you sound like you're describing is something like uh, Chapel Perilous. It's Robert Anton Wilson's idea. Have you heard of this? Yeah, I've heard of that. You go far enough down the rabbit hole and you have a experience of like metaphysical terror and angst. And it's not clear what's up and what's down. <laughs> the harder, yeah, the harder you follow this stuff, it really is like things become less real. And it's not that... It's not necessarily that you're going insane. It's just the questions that you start asking and the truth that you think you're going to find becomes less apparent. The questions become less real. They become less specific. It becomes like you're jumping into a giant pool of mud and you're trying to find something to grab at. Just something. And you know there's something in there, but you're, you're in a pool of mud. So it could be that the reason for that is that the uh, the control the controlling network is literally um, structured in such a way so that as you try to understand it, uh, it just drives you insane. It's a defensive mechanism. But the thing, the thing that's really spooky about that though is like that's not something that I've just noticed or John Keel's just noticed or Valet's just noticed. Like they've experienced it. Uh, the hellier people are experiencing it right now, and I don't know if they're ever going to come. Uh, come to understand that that's what's happening to them because they're they're pretty i think they're convinced that there's some kind of uh they're being inducted into something i'm trying to think of what initiated because in a way it is an initiation it's you're being initiated initiated into some sort of mystery that you want to learn about but the mystery is something you you can't understand there's there's something there that you're never going to grasp at. And if you don't realize that, you're going to end up like a lot of people in the 60s and 70s that just off themselves mysteriously. And right before that happened, they burned all documentations and research. We've lost a lot of research and we don't know why, but there's speculation. Like, how mad can you go before you realize that there is, like, you're not going to get to the bottom of it? Which, I mean, if that's Chapel Perilous, that's what it is, but... Uh, the reason I say it's an initiation, because it, in a way it's kind of a test, because if you don't understand that you're not going to understand at some point, like you don't just accept that there's a mystery that's fascinating that you're just not going to reach, uh, <clears throat> you don't belong in the field. You just don't. Yeah. And I don't know what consequences are justifiable by that because whatever is causing that line of madness, it doesn't really have morals in the way that we do. Like if you go insane and do crazy stuff or cause incidents that end up leading you in a crazy house for the rest of your life or drown in an ocean yeah. or gunshot head to the or gunshot wound to the head out in the middle of the desert, uh, I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't care. But, I mean, that's what you're up against. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we see in the works of John Keel, right? Uh, he, he talks a lot about, you know, people being dazzled by lights. 
what is that in the cosmic question? People being dazzled by lights and receiving messages from the gods or aliens. And generally, it doesn't go well for them as individuals, right? Yeah, and I don't know how much of that's because they're being initiated into a mystery or if it's just the phenomenon is senile and wants to mess Well, with. yeah, I guess I saw Keel. I thought maybe he was saying that um, the phenomenon doesn't care about the individual. The phenomenon wants to sometimes programs people to do something, to spread some kind of message. and the uh, it, it's But it's also it's a self-destruct program for the individual. Yeah, it's almost like ideological cancer yeah it's real weird yeah and so can i say then so this really ties into robert anton wilson who i've talked a lot about on my show before but not with you um very much not with you very much but with that chapel perilous which is his idea you know he was the big conspiracy theorist writer mm -hmm. you know the guy he wrote the illuminatus oh, trilogy okay. which is a science fiction yeah i haven't read it but I've and heard so of it. um and he was the one he was having i don't know if i mentioned this off the air or on the air that um he was having, uh, thought he was receiving messages from aliens operating out of the star system Sirius. Yeah. And yeah. then so was Philip K. Dick. At one point, the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick also thought he was getting these messages. And so did another person. And so, like, he was getting these messages and then he picked up a book at the bookstore and it was called, like, The Serious Connection. And he was like, what? Right? This is just what I've been, you know, getting these messages about. And uh, that's when he started to feel like he was going you know, going nuts. That's what he calls Chapel Perilous, where he started to feel like he was in a big conspiracy, right? Like it was all about him. It was a massive uh, series of synchronicities that seemed like they were designed around him. That's when he meets Jacques Vallée, and Jacques Vallée talks him down by talking about how, you know, it's real, but it's not what you think, right? They're not aliens from the star system Sirius. It's some kind of control system, and that's really all we know. Yeah. And then what I really liked, and so Robert Anton Wilson walks away from it. And he says, um, he commits himself. He says, when you go into Chapel Perilous, you either come out a stone-cold paranoid or a committed agnostic. And I chose agnosticism. Mm -hmm. So then throughout his life, he's he often says, like, he doesn't believe in theories. He doesn't believe in um, ideology. He's always trying to escape those things. He calls them reality tunnels. He says they're traps. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe there's a way. Like, I, maybe this whole stuff is, um, you know, it's very, very out there. But we might be telling an ancient story about how human beings can turn themselves into machines, right? By becoming fanatical or dogmatic about anything from science to religion to conspiracy theory, right? As steeped as the crazier stuff that we're talking about on this this part of the uh, the the podcast is, it 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 exists in the realm of speculation. A lot of it, but it's based on things that people really experience, at least on a phenomenological level. Yeah. And it's like I tell people whenever I'm talking about UFOs and they're saying, do you believe that UFOs are real? And it's like, it's not that I believe UFOs are real. UFO, UFOs are a legitimate experience that people have. People are seeing something. Those are unidentified. They're in the air, so they may as well be flying. And they're some kind of object, whether they're physical or metaphysical or paraphysical or whatever. Uh, UFOs are real in the sense that they are things that people experience that happen. They are unidentified flying objects. Are they extraterrestrial? That's Absolutely. a different question. Are they ultra-terrestrial? That's a mm. completely different question. That's a completely different book. Uh, but like the synchronicity stuff, it's it's tied in with that. And where people enter what you're calling Chapel Perilous, it's almost as if if we recognize that that is part of the phenomenon, 
the the phenomenons eventually, if we're looking at this from Valet's more control theory, uh, control theory of perception worldview, if we can call it William Powers' term for it, uh, it's going to recognize that we observe it, and it's going to deal with that in some way. Uh, does that mean that Chapel Perilous is going to stop happening? Who knows? But just the fact that plenty of people have that experience happen tells it in, it informs something about the phenomenon that we know about it. Uh, it's it's almost like a a double edged sword or something. I don't really know how to explain this, but mm. if we hmm, if we become aware of something based on if we come become aware of something that wants to remain unknown and something that we can't understand, but we can observe qualities of it, things that it does of it. Uh, what does that really tell us about it? Or is that something that we're just informing? Are we just informing on ourselves at that point? I don't really know. Are we just looking in a mirror? I don't know. Yeah. It it gets really sticky when you start looking into it as like the the synchronicity, the correspondence trail where you start going mad. Yeah, you can observe people doing that, and that tells you something about the phenomenon. But does it really? I don't know. Yeah. It it raises that in itself raises even more questions that I wonder if we're ever going to get to the bottom of. It's kind of spooky. Just a little bit. Yeah, it raises questions about the nature of reality itself. Yeah, it's uh like that's that's a thread that I followed a little bit ago, and it it's real weird how your mind stops working in ways that you can put in words. It's just real weird. That leads me to what I thought would be kind of a closing and most important topic of discussion, which was uh, as somebody who's been looking into this for a long time, what do you think about? about protecting yourself, uh, whether it's your sanity or your soul. What do you think we can do to uh, insulate ourselves from malevolent influences? Giving advice to people that listen to a show about things that could cost them their lives. Let me think about this. All right, so the only advice that I'd really give is, uh, like, if you have a question in your mind and it relates to the paranormal, if you're not ready for losing control, like potentially worst case scenario, let's let's talk worst case scenario. Uh, if you're not prepared to lose everything that you currently believe in and lose con lose all hold of reality, I'd say maybe study it at a uh, a superficial level because you can get deep in this stuff really fast. It's not like it's easy to say that, but let me give you an example. So John Keel would talk about uh, having synchronous or synchronous, synchronous, that word is really hard. Uh, synchronicity. Yeah, synchronized. Like those type of experiences with uh, televisions and phone calls and people writing him randomly and his correspondence, interviewing witnesses, just getting the same kind of stuff, and he would follow that. And that's one of the things that eventually leads him to not writing the Mothman prophecies until 75. 
like all the experiences of that and what happened in Point Pleasant and the fallout from Point Pleasant and the stress of the build-up to the big blackout, which you, you should really read the book to get that experience. Uh, and his telephone problems in New York. But if you're not prepared, let me think. Like, this is really hard to give advice. Look at it as at a superficial level because you can go from having an interest in this wanting to find something out and if you're hard set on getting to the bottom of the mystery that's whenever you start getting in the quicksand uh, it's not so much like oh ufos i wonder what planet they're coming from it's whenever you start noticing patterns in the material uh, you that's how i got into the ultra terrestrial hypothesis it wasn't just john keel it was all right this guy makes a good point i like what he has to say you start reading other stuff. You start reading ballet. You start reading a lot of the contact stuff. You start reading the history of it. Uh, you start reading about the synchronized experiences other people are having. Synchronicity. Uh, and then suddenly you're, you've got a problem that you're trying to work out to fit your pet theory together. And you're listening to Spotify. And a random song comes on that gives you an idea. And you go to the internet and you look up your idea and it goes to a Wikipedia page and you're like, oh, this is cool. It's talking about my idea. You see an interesting word that's not really related to what you're reading into and you click on it. And then you have a, the weirdest epiphany and your mind is blown and you're like, how deep does this go? Because I didn't even think of the problem from this perspective. And it's that interest where it keeps giving you a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and then it gives you a big chunk of something to bite onto that completely flips you off of what you were originally looking at to begin with because the problem is no longer related to the original question. It goes deeper than that. It's not even adjacent to that. It's in a different ball field. Uh, and it, in a way, it expands your mind, but you can keep going down that rabbit hole as far as you want until you just lose everything. You, you're no longer in touch with reality. Uh, so if you're not prepared for that, the, the best thing that I can say is there's we as humans are not allowed to know what is at the bottom of anomalistics or Fortiana. We're not allowed. That doesn't mean we can't have an interest in it. Uh, if you're worried at all in the slightest bit about losing your sanity or anything like that, uh, look at it at a superficial level, and if you start getting drawn in, give it a break. Uh, if you start feeling obsessed, like you're on a, on the trail of some important idea that can unlock the mystery of it all, uh, honestly, give it a break. Give it a month, six months, give it a year, uh, because the deeper you go, the harder it is to let ideas go and you can when you get far enough in the bottom of it those ideas that you built up are going to get flipped over and over they're just going to keep getting flipped and it warps your brain yeah as somebody who's dove into this and started going down that for a long time uh it's not fun not being able to sleep at night when you got to go to work in the morning it's not because it's not that you're worried that somebody's going to get you. It's what is existence at this point? Yeah, it's 
the definition of an existential crisis. So I'd say know what you're getting into. That's my advice. That seems like good advice. Well, I hope it is. <laughs> Sorry it took so long to get out. No, this was excellent. This is not the way I expected things to go, but it was better. So I hope that speaks to the possibility that we are not under the control system. Right? Ayuk and I was not able to control where things went. Unless that's the plan all along. Maybe it means that we are. Maybe it's some other force that directed us this way. You never know. All right. Thank you very much, Ted. Thanks for having me on, Dan. This concludes part two of my interview with Ted from The Gaslight Hour. Thank you for listening. Check out The Gaslight Hour podcast at thegaslighthour.com. As always, check out the Spectral Skull Session website, spectralskullsession.com. And be alert for a special documentary form of the Spectral Skull Session be appearing on YouTube at our YouTube channel. Until next time, stay strange and stay sane.